Let's pray together. Father, we pray for both ourselves and for our kids who just went uh, to Children's Church that this morning as we look into your word, that you would lead us to see Jesus, that, we would, that you would lead us to know him, that you would give us grace as we here this morning sit with a psalm that if we were listening to it and pondering the images and what this man is crying out to you is incredibly dark and difficult to hear. Would you, would you help us now as we look at your word together? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I just want to start with a question, which is, why do we have this psalm in the Bible? I, I told Aaron uh, last night, uh, Aaron's my wife, that, uh, oh, I'm preaching on Psalm 88. And she's like, isn't that the really, really dark one? Yeah, it is. Why is this in the Bible? I'm reminded of my time in campus ministry. Some of you know that I did that before I came here to Trinity and talking with students, uh, some who didn't claim to be Christians, some who kind of had a little bit more of a surfacey understanding of Christianity. And for, for these students, whether they personally believed it or not, uh, they could see the usefulness of Christianity to help people to be a little more positive. You know, they'd, we'd, we'd be talking and they'd say things like, you know, I like the parts of Christianity, you know, love, forgiveness, joy. I'm not really into that, like, judgment and sin stuff. You know, the, the negative parts. And I don't think that's just something that's isolated to college students. Uh, one Old Testament scholar commenting more broadly on the church says this, quote, I think that serious use of the lament psalms which is what Psalm 88 is, a lament psalm. Serious use of the lament psalms has been minimal because we have believed that faith does not mean to acknowledge and embrace negativity. We have thought that acknowledgement of negativity was somehow an act of unfaith. I don't think that we can deny in our fast-paced culture, our culture of self-help, our culture of productivity, that it shapes us to be people who either just want to focus on the positive and just go through life, just, you know, I just got to do the next thing, or to be people who just want a quick fix and move on. We don't want to be sad. And we don't want to sit with sadness. And if the Christian faith is nothing more than a therapeutic help to look on the positive side of life, this psalm makes no sense. It makes no sense why we have this in the Bible. Because in a sense, this psalm just digs the hole deeper. This psalm, you could say, is a prayer about unanswered prayer. It's a prayer of someone who is crying out to God in the darkness, and the darkness only seems to get more deep and more dark in the silence of the God who never shows up. It's a prayer that begins in darkness and ends in darkness. Literally in Hebrew, the last word of the psalm is darkness. It's the lived experience of someone who knows God, believes in God, loves God, and yet in the darkness is waiting on God to answer. 
this is in the Bible because whether we like it or not, sometimes this is how life is. I want to ask you, what do you do with suffering? What do you do with pain and experience of darkness? Whether that's a a physical pain, whether it's emotional, spiritual, relational, psychological we can seek to, you know, run away from it. We can seek to avoid it or just, you know, just never ending Netflix and social media and all the different ways that we can try and not think about it. But that's not really going to help us. And it's not going to help you when the darkness comes to your door. Psalms like this one show us the importance that all human emotion and experience ought to be voiced and brought to God. And in one sense, then, this psalm is like a strange gift. Because while it is very dark, and there's a sense in which, you know, maybe you don't want to think about sad things this morning. Or why should I spend time thinking about something that's so negative? This psalm is a gift to us because the experience of darkness is real, And it's a mercy to us that God gives us words, words to hear and to consider and even to speak in situations like this. And it's given to us that we would not merely be spectators, as one writer put it. I love that, you know, that we wouldn't be spectators, but that regardless of how you are feeling today or how I am feeling, whether this is pretty accurate to how you might feel, or this is like so the opposite of how you felt coming in this morning, that we as the people of God would be people who deal honestly with the suffering of this world and the brokenness of life, and that we would be people who pray with and draw near to those going through darkness. So this morning, as we look at this this very dark psalm, three things that I want us to think about. First, the experience of darkness. Second, how to hold on in the dark. And finally, meeting Jesus in the darkness. So let's start uh, experiencing the darkness. Basically, I want us to just sit, perhaps uncomfortably, but I want us to just sit with this man in his sadness. For the writer of this psalm, the period of suffering that he has been going through, this has not been a brief thing. This has stretched out over a long period. Verse 15, from his youth, he's been afflicted and close to death, he says. This experience of suffering has filled his life to the brim. Verse 3, he uses a word that's translated full. And it's often used in contexts uh, that are very positive, like when you've eaten your full of a meal. You know, you've had that probably feeling, that experience. I'm sure most of us, you know, you've gone to a really great restaurant. Maybe you're there with friends or you're there with family uh, or another, you, you know, another couple or something. And it's just rich relationships and just, you know, the appetizer and the main course and the cappuccino with the, the flourless chocolate cake at the end. And you just have this feeling of life is full. That's the image, only it's the reverse. Your life is full of troubles. 
The experience of, the su- of suffering has been persistent and relentless. Verse 7, this image is used a few times in the psalm. It's, it's like a wave. It's like waves crashing over you and overwhelming you, and it just won't stop. Like the ocean waves, it, they just keep coming one after another, one after another. No end in sight. The experience of suffering has been isolating. If you've been through a period of suffering, you perhaps know this, how it can be isolating. Verse 8, the NIV translates it this way. You have taken from me my closest friends and have made me repulsive to them. It is the experience of living death. Verses 3 through 7, the writer speaks of Sheol and the pit. And in his uh, really excellent book that I I would commend to you, uh, The End of the Christian Life by theologian Todd Billings, he writes about this Hebrew term, Sheol, quote, Along with a cluster of related terms in the Old Testament, the Hebrew word Sheol describes a deep, miry pit far away from light. Sheol is the place of darkness, a prison for those who are silenced, cut off from life. The psalmist, if you look at those verses 3 through 7, he says, verse 3, his life is drawing near to Sheol. He's in the depths of the pit, verse 6. He's like the slain in the grave, verse 5. Sheol is the place of the dead, but it's not just simply the place of the biologically dead. This psalm and other psalms use this imagery and speak of this experience of Sheol or the pit as sort of a living death, a sort of shadow over your life. Uh, Todd Billings writes about this in that book that I just mentioned, and it's really a fantastic book because he, he writes not only from the perspective of a theologian, but as a man with an incurable blood cancer. I believe he's in his late 40s, has a couple of kids. So he writes from that perspective. And he describes this experience of Sheol like living under a large sun-blocking canopy. So I'm going to use our tree again, uh, you know, very visual and experiential for all of us. The tree has been a good image for us in the past. Today, I want you to think everyone's in the darkness right now, basically. I'm the only one enjoying life in the sun. But I want you to think about this tree and the experience of Sheol like living under a sun-blocking canopy. So if you are in the sun, you feel you know, vibrant and you feel the joy of life and relationships are good and you feel this tangible sense of the Lord's warmth and his closeness like the sun on your skin. But if you're in Sheol, it's like a dark, cold shadow. It's like a sun-blocking canopy that has cut you off from life. And there are various ways that We might experience this, far too many to list, but just think about cancer patients like Todd Billings, receiving treatments that zap your strength for him that ultimately cannot cure him and are just delaying the inevitable. We want you to think about those suffering from chronic illness where the diagnosis is unclear and the treatments seem 
to do almost nothing for the pain and the fatigue. I want you to think about those suffering from domestic abuse, whose very homes are not places of rest and peace and love, but places of anxiety and fear and violence. I want you to think about refugees who have fled their homes and their countries. People who have lost someone near to them, maybe a parent or a friend. Parents who have had to bury children. The isolated and the lonely who sometimes go days, weeks, or even months without human interaction. One last example. Think about those living in parts of Chicago, not far from here. Violent neighborhoods where death, gangs, drugs, and shootings are normal. In all of these situations and many others that we could list, you are still alive, you're still breathing, oxygen is still coming into your lungs, but you can feel like you're living in Sheol, in the pit, under the shadow of death. The writer uses various images to try and communicate the painfulness of this living death. Verse 4, he uses a Hebrew term for man that emphasizes man kind of as like a manly man, a vigorous, heroic, warrior kind of man. And he says, I'm like that, but without any strength. You know, to modernize this imagery, you might think of someone in their early 40s, you know, the crossfitter, the marathon runner, They're athletic, they're healthy, they're full of strength, but now because of cancer, they can barely walk to their own bathroom. You feel like a shell of your former self that might be gone forever. Verse five, he uses a Hebrew verb, set loose, that almost exclusively in the Old Testament, it references a slave or a servant in the Old Testament who has been set loose, who has been freed from his or her time of service. But unlike that happy situation, like many of the images in this psalm, it's reversed. The, The way he uses it here, you might think of someone who has just this great job, this job that they love, a career that they're right in the middle of. They are not anywhere near retirement. They are in their career and they're loving it. And then they're let go. And there's no work. There's no one to employ them. He says, that's what my experience is like, only I'm being let go from life. From experience, the goodness and the joy of life. I've been given the pink slip from my health, from my friends, and from my God. And what makes all of this even more hard is that from the writer's perspective, God is doing this to him. If you look at the psalm, look at all of the active verbs where God is the subject. There's too many to even list, but I'll just, a, a few. Verse 6, you have put me in the depths of the pit. Your wrath lies heavy on me. You overwhelm me. Verse 8, you have caused my companions to shun me. And, I mean, this is just scratching the surface of all that we could pull out of this psalm and what this writer describes as his experience of darkness. It is deep, it is hard, it is painful, and it is real. And Christian faith 
acknowledges this. It is honest about the experience of darkness in this fallen world. But how do you hold on? How do you hold on in this kind of suffering? You hold on first by prayer. And when I say that, I feel like I even have to take a step back and say, and just as a disclaimer, I don't mean, you know, pray for a day or a week and then it's just all going to get better and it's all going to go away. This psalm is structured and organized around this man's crying out to God. It begins in verse 1 with prayer. It's picked up in verse 9 with prayer. Again in verse 13 as he cries out. Though he is in utter darkness, he doesn't give up in the darkness. And he doesn't just turn inward on himself and on his own thoughts in the darkness. And even in the darkness, when God doesn't seem to answer him, he he doesn't turn away from God, but he keeps crying out to God. Look at verse 1. Oh Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out. Or you could translate this, I have screamed day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. It's continuous. It's day and night. Or the second half of verse 9 where the writer reiterates this cry from verse 1 and he says, Every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. Or again in verse 13 when he reminds the Lord again of his plea that God has yet to respond to. But I, O Lord, cry out to you. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. It's as if this psalmist could anticipate one of Jesus' parables. In Luke chapter 18, Jesus tells a parable and it begins like this. And Jesus told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. And in the parable, Jesus goes on to tell a story about an unrighteous judge who didn't care about God and didn't care about people. And there was this widow who kept coming to him and pleading for justice. And even though he refuses her for a period of time, eventually he gives in, saying to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man because, of this, widow, because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And then Jesus says, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? The answer implied is he will. But the only way that the psalmist is going to be able to hold on to prayer is because he's holding on to God's character as he prays and cries out. When you're in the darkness, obviously, right, the metaphor, you can't see. Which means that to some extent, you can't trust your senses. You may not feel what is accurate. And so you have to hold onto God's character. In the words of of the hymn, Right When darkness veils his lovely face, I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. 
His oath, his covenant, his blood supports me in the whelming flood. When all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. Even though this man feels like God is the one who is causing his suffering, he nevertheless cries out to God on the basis of who God has revealed himself to be in his word and throughout the story of redemption. If you look at verses 10 through 12, you see this in these questions he asks. In these verses, he mentions four key terms which are used throughout the Old Testament to describe how God acts toward his people. Verse 10, wonders, describing God's miraculous act in the Exodus. Verse 11, steadfast love. That's that Hebrew word, hesed, God's faithful, committed, steadfast love. Verse 11, faithfulness. God is utterly reliable. Verse 12, righteousness. God is just and does what is right. When God did wonders at the Exodus, right, God delivered his people in the midst of certain destruction as Pharaoh and the army were charging at Israel and they had nowhere to go. And in essence, the writer is holding on to that and he's saying, but how can you do wonders if I'm dead? How will your steadfast love reach me if I'm dead? Your faithfulness, your righteousness. In verse 1, the psalmist begins by speaking of the God of my salvation. You are the God who saves And so I cry out to you. Throughout the psalm, he uses God's covenant name, Yahweh, in Hebrew. Whenever you see in the text, Lord, all in capital letters, that's the covenant name of God, the name revealed to Moses in Exodus 3. Yahweh is the personal creator God, the God who binds himself to his people in covenant, who delivers his people from bondage and slavery, the God who says, I am yours and you are mine. And this is the name that the writer is invoking in verse 1 and 9 and 13 as he's praying and he's holding on to God's character. In light of this, this series is meant to be practical. I think each time we've preached, we've tried to say, Jeff or I have tried to say something as to like what you could do with this psalm, with what we see in the psalms. And this week, what I'd like to invite you to do is take up Psalm 88 and pray it. We have Psalm 88 in the Bible that the community of God's people might pray this lament together. Because even though like, you may not be personally experiencing this, someone in this church probably is. And someone you know probably is. And certainly many people throughout the world are. So take up this psalm and line by line, read it slowly and pray. And let these words and images draw you into the experience of darkness that you might identify with those in that space, that you might intercede with and for them in that place. Right, in the last 30 minutes, you know, a normal sermon length, 60 people in the U.S. have been diagnosed with cancer, one every 30 seconds, and 20 people have died 
two every three minutes. And that's only the suffering experienced by cancer. I mean, the suffering in our world is all over if we look for it and we open our eyes to it. Let's take up this psalm as people who live honestly in the real world. And precisely as an act of faith, holding on to God's character, praying these words. And let's do this also because this is one way that we imitate and we follow our Savior who bore the weight of suffering in his very body. For in praying this psalm and identifying with the broken and the hurting, we meet with Jesus who does that very thing. So in our final moments, I just want us to consider how we actually meet Jesus in the darkness of Psalm 88. And if you take anything away from this psalm this morning, I hope it's this, that because of Jesus, you can be utterly realistic about the brokenness and suffering in this world, and you can also know the committed, faithful love of God through him. You'll see in your bulletin a poem at the end of the sermon notes section by Edward uh, Shalito. He was a pastor in England during the time of World War I. And if you know anything about World War I, you could imagine the darkness of living through a time like that and, and the difficulty of ministering to those who had suffered such a great loss and whose lives were shattered by that war. You could imagine the scars that people had, the physical, emotional, and psychological scars of soldiers who had survived the brutality and the darkness of trench warfare, of the killing zones, of all the new warfare technology like machine guns and the use of barbed wire and deadly, more accurate artillery and the use of poisonous gas. And Chilito wrote this poem, part of which is printed in your bulletin, out of ministering to people at a time like that. It's called Jesus of the Scars. I just want to read what's written there for you. If we have never sought, we seek thee now. Thine eyes burn through the dark, our only stars. We must have sight of thorn pricks on thy brow. We must have thee, O Jesus of the Scars. The other gods were strong, but thou wast weak. They rode but thou didst stumble to a throne. But to our wounds, only God's wounds can speak. And not a God has wounds, but thou alone. Do you hear what he's saying? This is the only thing that's going to equip you to face the darkness and to be healed in the midst of that experience, to be helped. We must have Jesus the wounded and scarred God. Here's one thing that Christianity can give you that you can't get, I don't think, anywhere else. There's no other religion. There's no other worldview. There's no other perspective on life that has this, a God with scars. God doesn't just give us words to express in darkness. But in Jesus, he comes and he experiences the darkness. He sits in the pit. He goes deeper into the pit than any of us ever could. 
I want you to think about Psalm 88 and what we've, what we've thought about so far this morning. And you can imagine Jesus praying these words as he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, as he felt the weight of what he was going to experience, how in his very being, the path for him was the path toward Sheol and the pit and the depths of darkness that was going to consume him. I mean, you can imagine Jesus on the cross bearing the weight of the wrath of God against sin and evil, being able to say like no one else, verse 7, your wrath lies heavy upon me. Verse 15, I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. You can imagine the pain and the isolation, isolation as he was shunned by his companions, as he was abandoned by his friends, as he was mocked by his enemies. You can imagine Jesus in anguish shouting out the words of verse 14, O oh Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Because of Jesus, we can honestly look at darkness in the face and still cling to the hope of God's character embodied in our very world of his faithfulness, of his covenant love and loyalty to his promises. Where else will you go? Where else could you go in the dark if we have never sought, we seek thee now. To our wounds, only God's wounds can speak. And not a God has wounds, but thou alone. Let me invite us to a time of prayer. Perhaps uh, this is a time uh, for some of us to confess our sins to God, to bring to God those places in our life uh, from the last week where we know that we have turned from him. Perhaps it's just a time for us to cry out for his help. Let's take uh, some time to do that now, and after a few moments of silent prayer, I'll, I'll lead us in prayer. Let's pray.